All right, back into the abyss of robo-weapons. Now in part two of this two-part episode with Don Howard, the brilliant professor of philosophy, we continue to explore the fascinating and profoundly important developments in autonomous weapons in artificial intelligence. And if uh, you have yet to listen to part one, you know what to do. In this episode, we pick up where we left off talking about the use of and the ethics around deploying next generation autonomous weapons. And by that, we're not talking about the theory or possibility of doing that, but the fact that we've already crossed that Rubicon in the war in Ukraine. There are some big questions about now about the ethical implications in general for autonomous weapons and the implications for international conventions around war fighting. Think about the following. So first of all, just a more general comment. I think it's likely that the Ukraine conflict will be the first major conflict where we will see fully autonomous weapons deployed on the battlefield. So Britain has already given the Brimstone missile system to Ukraine. And in Ukraine's publicity about that, they emphasize the fact that uh, this is a dual mode weapon. It can be guided to its target uh, by a pilot, but it can also be operated in a fully autonomous mode. I was struck by the fact that Ukraine chose to emphasize that, uh, that fact. As far as I know, they haven't yet used the weapon, but I... Well, now the Russians are also rumored to be deploying their ground vehicle, which is basically an autonomous tank, anti-personnel tank, yeah. Well, it's more than just a tank. It's a a broad-spectrum weapons platform. Yeah, right. Called the marker uh, system. And this is the real point that I wanted to come around to. When the Russians announced that they were shipping these marker units to Ukraine, One of the things that they emphasized was that their tech people had figured out how to design this thing so as to handle what's called the discrimination challenge. So in the international law of armed conflict, one of the fundamental principles is the principle of discrimination, which says that you can fire on a combatant, but you can't direct force against a non-combatant. And you have to make a good faith effort to effect that that discrimination. It's absolutely fundamental in just war theory and the international law of armed conflict. I was really struck by the fact that the Russians in their announcement felt the need to say that they had solved the problem. Now, have they solved the problem? I doubt it, but that's (laughs) my point. My point is that even the Russians recognized that there's already enough of a sort of moral consensus out there on these issues so that they had to speak to that question, whether or not that weapons platform can uh, uh, conform to uh, international law uh, on this, uh, this point. So when we talk about norming a space, we're not talking only about having rigid law that governs the space. We're also talking about using that framework of law and all of the debate about law to set expectations. Exactly. uh, That we hope will be conducive of better behavior on the part of all of the uh, actors. So again, I was just struck by the fact that that seems to be happening in some small degree. Uh, Well, I I think it's a pivot that's of, I had the same thought when I saw this, as you might imagine, 
in 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 fall and and like you, I've been following this not because of the horrific nature of another, you know, ground war in Europe after you know a, nearly a century. Uh, it shocked the world, but it, it, the intellectual consequence. The first Gulf War was the first smart weapons war of of history. I mean, there's there's there are different turning points in the weapons history of the world. You know, the first use of artillery at Constantinople back in, with the Persians. And there's different times where different, as you know, the phrase is revolution in military affairs, pivots around which we see adjustment, not just to tactics, but to norms, to standards. The first use of chemical weapons horrifically in World War One. It's a pretty universal agreement. Doesn't mean bad actors like Saddam Hussein didn't use chemical weapons anyway. But but it sure made him a pariah, uh, pretty very quickly, which is what you want. The whole point, the whole point of, and the, the language that you use, norms, normalizing a common agreement is what we have to do as humans in society. We can't can't have a world government. We get to dictate what everybody does or doesn't do. Setting aside whether the megalomaniacs want to do that, it'll never happen. <clears throat> so the only tool is a tool like this, where you begin to see to infect everybody's thinking with this is not acceptable. So that, I agree. I think it's, this is, uh, you know, this is clearly going to be, Ukraine is going to be not only the first, I was using the phrase, the first drone war because of the use of drones that are typically, but not always with human guidance intervention. Increasingly, as we know, using Starlink from Elon Musk, which bypasses the jamming that the Russians try, the, the autonomous feature of those drones as weapons has already been deployed. We 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 believe or know that that happened. So you, it's not really the first drone war. It's the first autonomous, not smart weapons, but we're now moving closer to true autonomy rather than, rather than smart guidance. And the, I agree. The Russians, I, I would be surprised if the Russians have solved the discrimination problem too, but they're very, I mean, when it comes to math and coding, the Russians may not be able to make CPUs like we can make, but they got really good mathematicians, which is essentially what coding is, as you know. So I I wouldn't be surprised that they've made important advances. Um, the discrimination one, though, is, I mean, everybody knows that. You don't shoot non-combatants. That's the discrimination issue. And you have to try not to. You put an example of where autonomy really matters, the, the thought experiment, which philosophers are famous for as Einstein was because he was a physicist philosopher you do the you do the the human thought experiment the thought experiment you gave is a really simple one in your article is if you're the human trying to make the discrimination decision in a hot war bullets are being fired at you you are emotionally captivated by the fact you could die and so now you have a choice fire now you don't sure whether the combatant is a real combatant or a civilian innocently in the way, you know, prudence would suggest you just take the shot because you're at risk and no one would make a moral judgment against you. Assuming you're not doing a rapacious act, uh, they would not morally judge you in at fault for protecting yourself. The weapon, because it doesn't have emotions, doesn't worry about dying can be programmed to wait and pause and to make a more accurate assessment about the discernment that this is a target I should take out or not. That is a priori, a more ethical weapon than the human who has to morally protect themselves to fire now when in doubt. Now, obviously there's gray zones, but that is an example to illuminate 
the direction that one can go, it's very powerful. I mean, it's self-evidently a more ethical weapon than the human who has to fire. It's now is every situation exactly like that? No, but talk to any combatant, they'll tell you that that situation happens a lot. So I I'm uh the, the the challenge will be setting aside what people do during a war because it, that's why your line war is hell captivate captures everything about once war is unleashed, people emotions run, accidents happen, all kinds of things. But before that, the design of the weapons that are available to be used if and when the war happens, that's when this moral framework really matters, how you design, how you how you teach the programmers to design the weapons. This, this is when it really begins, uh, so, which is why the educational mission sounds, I think, to a lot of people, it, when I say it that way, your typical reaction is, oh, you know, isn't that cute? <laughs> you want to teach people stuff. But... The reaction you had in Silicon Valley has is encouraging because that's the reaction you want to all the weapons designers, whether whether they're designing a piece of software to, or they're designing the robot itself, to infect the whole thinking of that whole cadre of students who are going to become the weapons designers. Whether we like it or not, there are going to be weapons designers in the next generation. I want them thinking that way. To come back to uh, your project, is anybody else or other people following? the lead now others i haven't followed this closely enough to know if other uh, schools other universities are implementing the in the curricula these kinds of ethics courses and and considerations so you're teaching it in silicon valley but is it infecting is stanford doing it now is carnegie Mellon doing it i hope so are they i mean i should know this but well so let me give you more good news on this front uh uh already two years ago those of us who pay attention notice this phenomenon. Last year, this just this past academic year, all of my philosophy colleagues have now noticed this, namely that the area of most rapid growth in job ads for philosophers is specifically technology ethics. Wow. There's been an explosion of job ads in the past year that name tech ethics as either an area of competence or an area of specialization. So many job ads that the few PhD programs training folks in this space just can't turn out at present enough students to fill those, uh, those jobs. But here's another effect of that shift in attitude. As we've rolled out more and more classes in this space, we've had to train up more and more graduate students to be able to teach these classes. Right. Many of them, if not most of them, didn't think of themselves as specializing in technology ethics. They're doing uh, epistemology. They're doing metaphysics. They're doing <laughs> religion. But they first TA'd in one of these courses. Then they got to teach their own sections of uh, these courses. Those are the students we are putting out now who are guaranteed to get good jobs because that's always noticed at a hiring school because so many people now are experiencing the same student demand for courses in technology ethics that we started to see a decade ago here. So this, this is another uh, last optimist silver lining in the dark cloud of dystopian nonsense about AI and technology. So all this silly hype that's in front page daily i mean i'm sure your news feeds are like mine every it's impossible to avoid a, another smart person 
saying some hyperbolically silly thing about a dystopian effect of computing and technology and <clears throat> robots or any, whatever. But the, the effect of that has been is to animate a lot of interest in the subject. Yeah. Uh, even though, the, and this is not new, even though some of the claims are just silly, uh, it does, they're animated by, broadly speaking, a correct sense. And the correct sense is we're at a tipping point. These things are really different, right? It's This is the old uh, old uh, philosophical observation about technology that I've used to great effect. It's the obvious one. The invention of the car is the invention of the car accident. Well, of course, uh, the invention of the airplane is the invention of the airplane. But this is true of all technologies because they, you don't invent them because you want an accident. You invent them because it is high utility function for mobility and freedom and all that stuff that reads people buy cars. Uh, yeah, there are uh, unintended consequences. This is this is the nature uh, of our quote fallen world. It is there's no it's the it's the origin of unobtainium as a as an element or philo philosophical point of, of perfection. So I, I I'm uh, I am actually uh, I, I have to say this is very encouraging and and the velocity with which it's happening is also very encouraging because it will attract people. It will attract students uh, into this do domain. So I could come back to the a point, a, a detail point though, because we're talking about education and ideas and philosophy. And then the, the cynics will say, well, I love this point you made in your piece. Well, you know, the, the weapons designers will just hide the fact that they're doing something. Always true, impossible. You can't prove a negative. I can't prove what, that somebody's hiding. But you made a really good point that I, familiar with both as a follower of but years ago as a practitioner of weapons development you wrote your piece that weapons developers i love this line are proud to show off videos of their new systems doing impressive things and display and demonstrate their products international weapons exhibitions yes they are exactly yes they are there's an awful lot of uh when, when i see a demonstration of something my first thought is what well, that's cool Right, that's I have to say the tech, the technical geek in me said that. Wow, I didn't know you could, you could actually build. And then my next thought is, okay, if that's what they're demonstrating, they're probably got more capability than they're demonstrating because it's you know the real capability is classified. And so, as a former weapons technologist, I can extrapolate very quickly what they probably can do within the boundaries of tools available. So I have a really good idea, not perfect, of what's in their skunk works. Uh, so I, but I don't, but it means that they're, to your point on this is that we, we have some degree of ability to gauge, uh, compliance on what's going on by virtue of just the human nature of how, how we do our engineering, how we do our bragging rights as nation states and how it, and how companies want to, I mean, companies want to win a contract. They got to brag about their capabilities. There's an awful lot of unintentional transparency, let's call it. I like that expression. I'm going to use that. <laughs> it's my gift to you for agreeing to join. <laughs> so let's come. Let's. Um, I want to talk about uh, Chat GPT and AI because it re it's relevant to robots. Because it's, it's a robot. It's a virtual robot. So I, you know, I distinguish as you know my book. Robots I take as a broad term, and there are virtual robots, which is what AI is in the cloud, uh, or in your, your Siri talking. And there's physical robots. Obviously, they they merge. In the cyber physical space, you have to have the virtual one to operate the physical one. So, but everybody knows in their head what a robot is. A robot is something like C3PO. I want it to walk around 
carry something for me and open a door. So the word robot is seared in the public conscious as having a very specific, you know, a very specific meaning. But what what worries people is this idea that the robot, whether it's chat GPT or the Android walking around like in Star Trek, is in fact intelligent. So I've been, I, you know, I've pilloried the phrase artificial intelligence as being the equivalent of calling a card, a car, an artificial horse, you know, overlapping utility functions on a Venn diagram, but it's obviously not a horse. Uh, airplanes are not artificial birds. We have built some pretty impressive artificial birds lately, pretty pretty neat simulacrums. Not we're, nowhere near as good or flexible as a real bird, but pretty impressive stunts. But the, the argument here, uh, it's a version of the singularity argument that the machines are almost as smart as us. And the attempt by the technical community to change the phrase back to intelligent automation, which is the right phrase, better than artificial intelligence. Uh, we're, we're not, I mean, it's, it's going to be AI. It is AI. We have to live with the term. It's just like, it's just whatever. But you're the philosopher. I'm not a philosopher. I, I, I dabble, read it. I just reject out of hand the proposition that it's intelligent. And they even that we, because we don't even know what intelligence is really in order to claim that we can engineer something that would have quote intelligence. So the Turing test is like a misdirection that if I can have a, a, a computer answer questions in a way that tricks me into thinking it's not a computer, somehow that makes it intelligent. I'm, I'm not buying the argument. Uh, it's it's a, again, it's for me, it's a parlor trick stunt, uh, but I turn to uh a great Notre Dame philosopher here to either dispute that I got it wrong or reinforce my instincts that the intelligence argument is just in that category of airplanes flying in space. There's no air there. It's the it's the wrong extension of the analogy. It just feels silly at the face of it. But am I right? Am I wrong? So we agree on this. Uh, Chat GPT, GPT-4, this is not the... Uh, dawning of the age of artificial consciousness or uh, anything like that. Uh, I was struck by the fact that you've twice used the expression in our conversation, parlor tricks, to describe <laughs> because I have used exactly the same phrase uh, to describe, describe it. It takes a lot of uh, intelligent designers to build these systems. Yeah. Uh, but still, it's just a parlor. Uh, it's it's still just a parlor trick. And there's so much that could be said in this space. But you asked me to put on my philosopher's hat yeah. and think about this at a higher conceptual level, which I'm happy, uh, I'm happy to do. So we don't know what intelligence is. That's absolutely right. We don't know what consciousness is. Right. That's absolutely right. We have this dim sense that we are both intelligent and conscious. But we <laughs> or some of us hope we are. <laughs> hope we are. But, uh, but, but neither of us can say what that really consists in. But here's the real point I want to come to, and this is the philosophical point. Um, uh, all of the best AI that's being built now, including ChatGPT, 
uh, is done with machine learning uh, uh, technology. And the most uh, sophisticated form of machine learning is neural nets. Neural nets is an approach to computing, goes all the way back to Alan Turing, that uh, falls within a class of what's called bio-inspired models of computation. Yeah. Where the fundamental idea is you recognize that the brain is a computer. So then you ask, what is it about the structure and functioning of the brain that enables it to function uh, as a computer? And can we borrow that in artificial computational architect architectures? So in the case of neural nets, the way this works is it's literally just a crude model of what you find in the brain. In the brain, right. you've got neurons, you've got dendrites connecting the neurons, you've got activation potentials uh, at every juncture between a dendrite and a neuron. So that controls whether or not the firing of one neutron induces the, or uh, neuron induces the firing of another neuron. Right. neuron. That's exactly the structure of an artificial neural net. You've got nodes, you've got connections, and you've got weights on those nodes. Now, there's a lot more to the brain than just that. That's a grossly oversimplified model of the uh, of the brain. Uh, but the uh, the additional stuff in the brain isn't different in kind from that. It's just further details of how evolution has engineered our brains. So let me come then to the point that uh, I, I would like to emphasize. So we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what intelligence is, but we know that whatever we are, well, we think we know that whatever <laughs> we are, we are intelligent and conscious beings. So if this uh, thing we know not what it is, consciousness, intelligence, could live in my brain, and if the artificial neural net is designed as a simulacrum of right. my brain, there's no a priori reason why at some point in the future, that artificial structure might begin to manifest uh, those traits that we identify with intelligence and consciousness. So on the question of principle, uh, I think, you can't construct an argument for the impossibility of artificial consciousness or artificial. Right. But that's detachable from the question, where are we on the road to that point? Yeah. If ever we're going to reach that point. Yeah. And my answer to that is as impressive as some of this stuff is, we're still a long, long, long way from anything faintly resembling human consciousness and human intelligence. Let me end with an anecdote. Just two weeks ago, I was at a science and values meeting at the uh, University of Texas at Dallas, a wonderful meeting. Uh, one of the people doing an introduction to a keynote talk had the clever idea of asking ChatGPT to write the introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, it was laughable. I mean, absolutely laughable. Uh, it was grammatically uh, well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chat GPT gets grammar and diction perfectly, uh, but it was totally vacuous. Just this endless string of platitudes, uh, words of high praise about the individual that could have been applied to just about any individual. And I remember sitting there thinking that it would have taken me 10 seconds to find this guy's CV out there on the internet yeah. and put a lot of detailed facts into that introduction. ChatGPT can't do that. Now, 
I've done the same parlor stunt in live with asking it to write a sonnet in the style of William Shakespeare from the Merchant of Venice and no more than 100 words to describe X. Yeah. does a good job of that because it's very much a semantic task. Yeah. To your point, the fact that it failed to do what you described, it shows you that the software still, to use the technical term, really sucks. It's yeah. not very close. But let me come back to the philosophical point you made. Because obviously, let's say you're right, because you're this is your field. You one cannot make the a priori argument that an artificial intelligence couldn't exist if we could simul, su, simulate the exact construct of the biochemical, bioelectrochemical system that our brain is. I take that, uh, of course. You know, it's a it's a philosophical logic argument that is. It's indisputably accurate. We don't we don't know what would happen if we did that because why it, you you can't disprove that it wouldn't evolve something that would replicate intelligence or consciousness if it, if it, you had the simulacrum. But here's the thing: uh, to that point, as you well know, our understanding of brain function, and I'm not a neurophysiologist, uh, but I follow this field relatively closely. Uh, we're constantly discovering new things about how the brain functions, constantly. Uh, I, I I would say it's probably not an inaccurate analogy. It's kind of like the old, it was Aristotle in the shadows in the cave, right? That wasn't Plato. Did I get that right? <laughs> Plato. Plato, I'm sorry. Tony would be, our, my son and your former student would be horrified that I said it was Aristotle, not Plato. The shadows in the cave uh, analogy is an ancient one. Uh, people probably know what that is. I mean, if you if you didn't know there was an outside world and you and you had light behind you and all you could see is looking forward and all you saw was your shadow and you're trying to describe what what you are by only looking at the shadows, you'd have a hard time because that's that all you could see. Or the one I like to use is that the we we have learned some years ago that uh, apes can be tool wielding and in fact uh, can find a stick and stick it into an anthill and uh, coax the ants to come out so they can eat the ants. Uh, they have no idea how ants evolved, how they structure, they have no idea how the ants colony looks like inside, but they have enough knowledge to be able to figure out, stick a stick in the ant hill to get the ants to come out and eat them. <laughs> I think we're probably at that stage understanding how the brain <laughs> brain works. I mean, our, our, our physical overlay on the reality of bio extra biochemistry is getting better and better conforming closer and closer to what might be what's really going on but our our knowledge of just underlying cell structure and how the cells actually operate basic cells never mind neural cells and the more i talk to professors of that field the more fascinated i am how much more we're learning but when you push them what they'll tell you is you know is how much we don't know about really basic stuff of the underlying structure and function. So I'm I'm sort of in the camp that I agree with the philosophical point, but I, you're, I also agree with your, your point that we are so far from something, at being able to build a simulacrum of what, what a brain is, that it's breathtaking. I, if, again, it's like uh, making a synthetic horse versus making a car. We made a car, which does a lot better than a horse for speed and carrying people comfortably. So it has, doesn't mean that it is an extraordinary utility, but it's not a horse. And it's not even close to being a horse. In my head, the analogy works for computing and AI and autonomous weapons. We're going to make things that have incredible utility and danger, 
but it, it's not a person. It's not conscious. It's not, uh, and we need to control it. There's, again, I've sort of come back. It's unexpected benefit of having our conversation. I feel like the we're norming the space unintentionally from the hype because it's attracting people who are smart, students of care. It's making students that you're talking to who become entrepreneurs want to imbue ethical framework into their work from the get-go. This is really, I mean, this is the right place sort of to wrap uh, your over-generous use of consuming an hour of your time being a philosopher. Uh, it's back to being an optimist. We, we actually have a shot. You could be a cynical of that, that we might screw it up. But I think I think the uh, the natural inclination of of entrepreneurs to try to to do things and now do them right will will sort of point us in the right direction. I would say we're not going to get it right because we're humans, but this is really encouraging. I'm I'm very pleased to hear that. That uh, and that's a great project. I mean, you, you're uh, when you and I first started talking about this over ten years ago, more than ten years ago. Uh, it was early stages. I had I would not have been optimistic then that we could get. Uh, entrepreneurs to have really embraced this. I felt like it would be, a, you'd be pushing the rope proverbially as opposed, now you're just feeding, you're, just, you're being pulled along. You can feed this system. This is great. This is really good. Congratulations. Well, thank you. But, uh, uh, you know, the real credit goes to the kids. Yeah. Because they've figured this out on their own. They really have. Well, it, but they're figured on their own because they're living in an environment in which it, it calls upon them to figure it out, right? We've yeah. actually got good enough. So it's the the yin and yang. But no, I, I think you're right about that. And again, I'll say the science fiction, the dystopian stuff that makes you think about it. I think really smart students, I'll bet you, and I haven't been in a classroom, I'll bet if you asked smart students, uh, and they're all smart, but because they would be in your classes. I mean, they get the schools like that because they're smart. The boundaries of what's silly versus what's not silly we may disagree in the gray zones, but the, the the Terminator silliness is not in their head. They're thinking about the practical stuff. In the news this morning, Wall Street Journal, not that we could, there was a, a long story about the NHTSA, NHTSA is a, you know, National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration's reports on um, Tesla and other vehicles, the Hondas, their autonomous braking system, smart braking, mm -hmm. using software, which is AI, mm -hmm. uh, inappropriately breaking too often uh, this uh so they're now running a if you haven't seen the news it's kind of interesting too, too much phantom breaking when there's no no reason to break uh which means the system is not working as as intended uh we'll fix it uh but this is just breaking this is not driving <laughs> this is not putting a weapon this is we still haven't got the breaking part right and getting that to be ethical is important because the, if you do phantom braking at the wrong time, it, it causes a hazard by definition. I'll have to check that article out. That's yeah, it's it's an intro. I mean, I sort of suspected there was more going on than people have been talking about publicly. And I don't mean this is a knock on Elon Musk. I mean, he's an interesting character all by himself. Uh, uh, I I happen to like him because he's doing hard things in the hardware space. And most tech entrepreneurs have stuck in the software. And the fact, he's building cars and rockets and, yeah. you know, batteries. These are difficult things to start companies around and good for him. You know, it's, we'll have to do another one to talk more about uh, cyber physical systems and uh, especially the ethics teaching component. I'd like to spend just some time thinking about the code of ethics feature and how to 
formalize that through the standards committee's process because engineering has standards committees, which is a very well old and established century long means to become part of the certification of, of an engineer. Right. Is there a movement for that? Well, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, we actually spend a lot of time in my data ethics class talking about exactly this stuff. Codes of ethics, uh, what kinds of procedures do you have to put in place so as to maximize the impact of codes of ethics, uh, uh, what kinds of enforcement there might or might not be. Uh, uh, this is actually an important topic. And my students get really turned on about that topic. Well, that's, again, the optimist would say, again, that's great, because the fact that they wouldn't, what you worry about when you talk about ethics, and this has come up before, is that students' eyes would glaze over. They roll their eyes and I've talked about ethics again, as opposed to being animated by it. That's also a turn, which is which is great. We have to get that into the business schools too, not just the engineering schools. <laughs> well, this is happening as well. Good. The director of our new Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center uh, is a professor in Mendoza, our uh, school of business. Excellent. This is all all exciting. Well, you're you're uh, you're. Um, you're engaged in noble work, and and to use a phrase that would not be unfamiliar at Notre Dame, in the Lord's work, <laughs> it's, as well. It's important to have ethics and technology. Uh, it's be, 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 no for no other reason, as you know. I begin my book with this: to to invent, to create technology is to be human. Right. It's not it's not distinct from an alien from humans. We are inventing creatures. That's what we do. Homo favor. Yeah. It's a, we should not be called homo sapiens. I agree. It's a, yeah. it's a great lie. We're never going to get it to change, but I, I agree. So, Don, thank you. Thank you for uh, the time. And it's really good to see you looking hale and hearty. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invitation, Mark. It was uh, uh, very pleasant to get to chat with you again. I remember <laughs> we used to get to do this uh, in person. And, uh, it was always enjoyable. Yeah, we're going to do it in person again. This has got, we got to make it happen. Thanks, Don. Have a... Uh, have a wonderful summer, and we'll uh, we'll talk again. Okay, bye bye. That's it for this uh, two part episode. Uh, it's delighted to have Don Howard join uh, and dive a little deeper into an incredibly important topic, fascinating one. And as always, I'm reminding all of you that if you're enjoying these podcasts, please spend a few minutes to give us a rating, um, you know, a favorable one. But I'll I'll take criticism, and don't forget. Uh, I'm happy to take questions in the future. Uh, I'll devote an episode to questions and queries that come to me by email in the rating platforms, by text or Twitter, LinkedIn, all those places. So once again, and until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Optimist.